This morning we are in the book of Acts and we are headed to chapter 2. If you would like to flip there for our time together in God's Word, we'll be in Acts chapter 2 and the first 13 verses this morning. We come this morning to a very well-known and a very amazing, awe-inspiring passage, uh, one that is incredibly important and one that is also uh, very often misunderstood, particularly among uh, the community of modern Christianity. And so we will, in humility, seek to uh, learn from the Lord this morning in His Word. Two Sundays ago, if you recall, we began this series, The Power to Change the World, going through the book of Acts. And uh, we looked at this incredible promise that Jesus begins with, literally his last words on the earth before his ascension, and we will continually come back to this, but this is Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus says to the believers gathered around, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth to which we say, yes, Lord. Last week, we talked about how uh, through the second half of Acts chapter 1, we were encouraged by that scripture to wait patiently because the Lord Jesus has made his promise, and yet in the interim, they had to wait. What does it look like to wait in faith, in, in obedience, knowing that Jesus himself is always faithful to us? So now we come to Acts chapter 2, and here at the beginning, the waiting for the disciples, for those believers, is now finally over. Jesus' promise is fulfilled some 10 short days after he made his promise. And the Bible tells us here, as we'll see in just a minute, that all the believers, all 120, this is the church of Jesus on planet earth, is gathered together in close community when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. Pentecost. What is Pentecost? Pentecost literally means 50th, the 50th. Pentecost was the Jewish feast of weeks, and it occurred every year 50 days after the very first Sabbath of Passover. And it was a yearly or annual celebration of God blessing and providing a harvest. And for this reason, this day was also known as the Day of First Fruits. So here we are at Pentecost, the moment of celebrating God's harvest, the moment of first fruits, and see how clearly God is speaking to his people through the word and through the Holy Spirit. We know that Jesus dies for our sins on Passover, a Jewish holiday in which they remember God saving his people by the blood of the lamb that would mark out those who were trusting in the Lord to protect them from death, from the death angel. And now we have 120 believers who will be the first fruits. The first fruits, the beginning of God's harvest, who will be filled with the Holy Spirit we're about to see. They will be just the beginning of what is going to take place as God in a fresh way pours out his Holy Spirit upon his people. And as the gospel is preached, we will see a harvest of new believers. In fact, at the end of chapter 2, we'll see immediately the very first time that Peter, one of the disciples or one of the apostles, when he begins to preach, that the Bible will tell us that in that moment, that 3,000 people, in one moment of the preaching of God's word, will come to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior and receive the life-changing and life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. And we are invited today to join in that same mission, to be filled with the Spirit, and to be part of Jesus' mission 
to change the world. How do we change the world? By the gospel of salvation of Jesus Christ. Let's look now to Acts chapter 2, and we'll read together verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what? does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit might lead us this morning as we come to your inerrant and infallible word. We submit ourselves to you, King Jesus, and to your word. We are thankful for the message of hope and life, new life, and salvation that is therein contained, and show us how we might live out your gospel mission this morning through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Four ways this morning in this passage, four ways that the Holy Spirit arrived to fill the believers. Number one, the Holy Spirit came in a mighty wind from heaven. Listen to what the text is telling us this morning. The Holy Spirit came in a mighty wind from heaven. We see this in verse 2. The Holy Spirit is going to manifest himself, and by the way, it's a himself, not a itself. It's personal. It's he. The Holy Spirit is going to manifest himself physically in two incredibly important, very real, but very symbolic ways. The first we're going to look at is wind, and then secondly, fire. I am extremely indebted here as I studied through this this week to the commentary work by both James Boyce and Kent Hughes to understand these powerful images that God gives us here by the Holy Spirit. In English, as we come as English speakers to the word spirit, the word spirit does not often jump off the page to us like maybe it should in English. Um, We really only use it when we're referring to the Holy Spirit Right? Or if we're talking about maybe the greatness of the human spirit, which is a poor use of it, really. Or at Halloween, when we're talking about spirits or ghosts or maybe a good drink, spirits. We don't really get what the Bible is after here. But in the languages of the Bible, that is Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament, the word for spirit is used simultaneously for wind and breath. It is the same word, spirit wind, and breath. And this is what the Bible is speaking to us. In Hebrew, the Old Testament, all of these Jews would very much understand the word for spirit is ruach. 
You're welcome. <clears throat> Which you cannot even say, right, without expelling significant breath, and if you're really good, a little bit of phlegm to go along with it, ruach is the Hebrew word here for spirit. Where else does it show up? Let's go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, chapter 1, verse 1, was hovering, was winding, was breathing, is the word here in Hebrew, was hovering over the face of the waters. This is not a little dove that comes to prance on the water. This is the Spirit of God breathing and blowing over what is presently formless and void, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, will then begin to create. And they will bring light where there was darkness, and they will bring life where there was no life before. They will bring form. And then a chapter later, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and what? Breathed, same word, into his nostrils, the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. What is taking place here is the, the theme throughout Old and New Testament. God, by his spirit, is the author and the giver of breath and blows life into Adam and to, to all of his creation. We know that by the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world, and when sin enters the world, destruction and death enters the world and separation from this good and loving, life-giving God. What are we going to do about it? Well, we're going to do nothing about it. Was God surprised by it? No, not at all. In the Old and in the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit breathe not only physical life, but spiritual life into his people. God is the author of life physically and spiritually. The Holy Spirit regenerates spiritually dead hearts to life and enables us to even believe and to have faith. This is the Holy Spirit's work. Look again in the Old Testament. This is Ezekiel chapter 34, an incredible chapter. It says, Then he said to me, God speaking to Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones, dead bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. In verses 12 and 14, through 14 of the same chapter, he'll say again that God will reach out first, put his spirit into his people, and will bring not only physical but spiritual life to them. Jesus tells us the same thing in John chapter 3 in the New Testament. Jesus puts it this way, that new life spiritually must be breathed into you, that a second or a new birth must be breathed into you by the work of the Holy Spirit. Listen to John chapter 3. Jesus answered. This is the conversation with Nicodemus that we looked at last year as we walked through the Gospel of John. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Here are new believers, not by their effort, but by God's grace and love, 
First, being regenerated to life by the Holy Spirit, responding in saving faith, being born again to new life, and receiving the Holy Spirit at the moment of their salvation. Are you made alive in the breath or the mighty wind of the Holy Spirit? I would say to you this morning, believer, do you see how much God loves you to breathe life into you? to reach out to you in love. You are loved. We talked about this yesterday. You are loved by the Lord. Why? Because you've done wonderful things? You've impressed Him? No. You are loved by God because He loves you. It's His grace entirely. And if you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, do you see what you are missing out on? Eternal life, salvation in Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 22. I love this verse. Listen to how this reads. Stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? What's he saying here? The science here is fascinating, right? If you and I stop breathing as humans, all of us, what happens very quickly? We die. The breath that we have was given to us from an outside supernatural person. God himself breathed life into us, but God is not that way. No one breathed life into God. God is self-sustaining. God is eternal. There is no beginning and there is no end to God. He is breath and life. So the Bible is saying, therefore, don't put your hope in yourself. Don't put your hope even in other people. Put your hope in the Lord with whom is breath and life. Because he loves you enough to do for you what you would never do and could not do yourself. He brings dead hearts to life. He loves you. He fills you with his power. And it is a message of grace from the Lord to us. Wind. We see the wind or the breath, the spirit. Number two now. The Holy Spirit came in tongues of fire that rested on the believers. The Holy Spirit came in tongues of fire that rested on the believers. We see this in verse 3. So the second symbol that we get is the Holy Spirit demonstrating His presence, His power, His illumination with what the Bible refers to as tongues of fire that came to rest on each one. So now you're going, okay, so like little tongues, like it's a tongue that's on fire, it's fire that has the shape of a tongue. I don't know. I wasn't there. This is not a throwaway word, though. The Bible is using and choosing the word tongues to describe the fire intentionally so. Tongues. What? We're talking about now the tongue in my mouth, the tongue in your mouth. What? has God given us a tongue for? God has given us a tongue to speak. God has given us a tongue for speech, to communicate both with God and with one another, with humanity. God gives us both the power to breathe in and the firepower to speak out. And we pray that the words that we speak might be glorifying to him and not a detriment to him. God has made a way here, we see, also for personal relationship with him because this tongue of fire comes to manifest itself on each believer there. The 120 that were there, there were 120 tongues of fire because the Holy Spirit comes to fill each and every one so that they can speak with their tongue about Jesus, that we might be 
messengers or witnesses, says Acts 1.8. Fire as well in the Bible, in the Old Testament, has a profound background that we should not miss. In the Bible, the symbol of or fire manifests itself as a symbol of God's presence, God's power, God's protection in many cases, and God's judgment. God's presence was on Mount Sinai with Moses and all of Israel in Exodus 24. God led Israel with a pillar of fire by night in Exodus 13. God showed his power on Mount Carmel with Elijah in his showdown with the false prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. Come to the New Testament, we see it represented in terms of God's judgment, his good judgment and good justice. Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. That should humble us. That should give us pause. Fire also brings with it light, illumination, understanding, hope. At creation, we've already seen God brought light out of darkness. In Isaiah chapter 9, a promise about the one who was to come, Isaiah 9 says, the people in darkness have seen a great light. What are they referring to? Well, Jesus shows up, and in the book of John, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus then tells his people, you remember this? Let your light so shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is the Holy Spirit bringing light, and these are the results. The Holy Spirit brings clarity. The Holy Spirit brings illumination and understanding to God's people. Eyes that were once blind now see by the goodness of the Holy Spirit. Ears that were closed off to God are now open to hear the tongues, the word of God proclaimed by his people and filled with his Holy Spirit power. Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist says this of what Jesus is coming to do and ultimately what the Holy Spirit will come to do. John, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 3. I, says John the Baptist, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So the Holy Spirit comes, manifests himself here in Acts chapter 2 in life-giving wind or breath and powerful tongues of fire that empower his people to use their tongue as witnesses for King Jesus. So what do we do with that today? What is it then for us today to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is the language of the text, like the Holy Spirit did with the 120 believers at Pentecost? Number three, we see this in verses 4 through 11. The believers were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The believers were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Two works of the Holy Spirit, two of the many things that the Holy Spirit does, often here in this passage, get mixed together, and in humility I will say misunderstood, most often now in modern Christianity. The first is this, being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Got to get baptized in the Holy Spirit. What does that phrase mean? Sometimes when we hear this phrase, people will say to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, people will talk about Pentecost, this moment, like this moment here is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
And what they mean when they communicate this is a baptism that is a supernatural experience later after their conversion in which specific or certain believers receive the gift of speaking in unknown tongues and will demand that you speak in unknown tongues as an evidence that you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit and will thus create a false dichotomy of two different types of believers. As we saw in John 3 briefly and in Matthew chapter 3 as well, baptism of the Holy Spirit has to do with regeneration and being born again, which are both gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now let's take it a step further. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. Paul, speaking on the same topic, says this, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Here again, we have all believers baptized by the spirit, and it is a source of our unity. It is a source of our shared unity, not a distinction between who may speak in tongues and who does not speak in tongues. Understand, baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs when you are converted by the Holy Spirit at the moment that you say, Jesus, save me. To be baptized by the Holy Spirit is to be a Christian. Understand what I'm saying? Now let's come to what Acts chapter 2 is speaking about. Acts chapter 2 is not speaking of baptism in the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2 has already told us in verse 3 it is about being filled with the Holy Spirit. How do we understand this distinction? Filled with the Holy Spirit occurs, that phrase occurs 14 times in the New Testament. And in each example, the result is that believers are empowered to speak boldly with their tongue about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The emphasis is not on speaking in tongues, meaning unknown tongues, although that does happen in many places in the New Testament. The emphasis is not on miracles, although there are times when there are miracles that associate with what is happening. The emphasis is always, in all 14 places, on ordinary believers like you and me being filled with the Holy Spirit and emboldened to speak with their tongue, to do what Jesus said in Acts 1.8, which is to witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the result that by God's grace and the Holy Spirit's power, people hear and believe and are saved. Are you spirit-filled is a question not about are you speaking in unknown tongues. It is a question of are you speaking powerfully and effectively about the good news of Jesus. Here's an example. Acts chapter 4, a few chapters later in verse 31. When they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Speaking in tongues here, specifically in Acts chapter 2. Speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2 is real languages resulting in people, we are told, from many nations being saved. Verse 6, verse 8, and verse 11 of this passage make it explicitly clear. These are real languages that people already spoke. Now, if we were to survey all of Scripture, you will see clearly that there are two types of tongues in the Scripture. 
Uh, this is my language, not the scripture's language, but you can essentially boil it down to there is a one-step type of tongues and a two-step type of tongues. This is the one-step version. What's taking place? Real foreign languages that God has supernaturally given believers the ability to speak that they could not speak five minutes earlier. I speak English. It's the only language I know. The Holy Spirit filled them, and now suddenly I can speak Russian. And there are Russians in the crowd who are hearing it and going, that's my language. And they're hearing the good news of the gospel for the first time. That's the one-step type of tongues that we see in the scripture and specifically here in Acts 2. There is a second type or a two-step type that we also see that when we use the phrase speaking in tongues, we more typically think of, and that is Holy Spirit languages that cannot be understood on their own. This is not Russian or speaking Spanish or some known language. This is a new language from the Lord. And Paul gives us very clear instructions about how to navigate the two-step speaking in tongues. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he says this, if you are gathering together as believers, having a Sunday morning worship service, if someone speaks in an unknown tongue, there must simultaneously be someone who also has the gift of interpretation. If someone has been given the gift, the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, meaning unknown languages, there must be someone there to interpret it. And if not, then the speaker of tongues in humility should cease speaking. Paul in no way forbids speaking in tongues, meaning unknown languages, in personal worship or personal devotions or between you and the Lord, but he does explicitly say if there is no one to interpret it, then you should stop speaking. So we have a one-step type and a two-step type. The one-step type, they're speaking real languages of what we are seeing here in Acts chapter 2. Now see this. This is the amazing part of what's going on here in Acts chapter 2. The speaking in tongues was God beginning a reversal and a restoration that would change the world. This is the beginning. It is not the completion yet. The completion is when Jesus returns one day. But if we go back again, Old Testament, Genesis chapter 11, there's this crazy story. Remember what it is, Genesis chapter 11? It's the Tower of Babel. Remember the Tower of Babel? What happens in the Tower of Babel? God confuses the languages. Up until that moment, everybody on planet Earth spoke one language. But God came down and saw the arrogance and the sin of people who were trying to act like God, usurp God's authority, and build for them essentially a stairway to heaven. God says, I will confuse their languages as a just judgment for their sin. And they experience then the confusion of languages. But now in Acts, we see God doing a new thing, a purposeful thing, a planned thing on his part, but we are seeing him reverse the curse. We are seeing him begin to restore lives in a new way so that people can clearly hear and believe the gospel and actually hear it in their own language. We should be amazed at what is taking place here in this list that we get. And there's a reason that we get a list. There are at least 15 different ethnic groups and languages that are being listed here in Acts chapter 2. It is the beginning of God's work that the message of the gospel might go where? To every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. 
the message is going out. And why were people from such a diverse geography and languages, why on earth would they happen to be here in Jerusalem at this moment? Because God is sovereign. Because God is good. He sends his Holy Spirit at the exact moment of Pentecost. Well, what happens at Pentecost? Jews from all over the world travel back to Jerusalem. Jews who have been in other countries and become a part of those cultures for centuries, who speak different language and have different cultural customs, all come back to Jerusalem, and now for the first time, they're hearing the gospel message. It's not a mistake. It's not a coincidence. It's the goodness and the grace of God, and God is bringing the gospel message home to those who hear it. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what God is doing in our time. And so therefore, brothers and sisters, we are commanded in the same way to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to speak boldly and effectively the good news of Jesus Christ. Fourth and finally, it's profound to me that this little passage ends with this It might be a throwaway couple comments, but we should not throw it away. The crowd had to respond to the Holy Spirit. The crowd had to make a decision about what they were seeing and in particular hearing that day. And we see this process of responses from verses 6 all the way to the end in verse 13. The crowd shows us really three basic responses. And the Bible records them, I'll say as amazed is one of the words that keeps showing up. The second way is perplexed or bewildered is another word that the Bible uses, and mocking. Three different ways that people who are hearing the message of the gospel respond, amazed, perplexed, mocking. Some people saw the work of the Holy Spirit and they were were curious, but they were perplexed. They didn't really want to take the time to deal with the implications of what they saw and heard, and so they keep Jesus at arm's length. It's interesting, but I don't really know what to do with it. It's interesting, but I don't really have the time, and I can't believe in this by faith. I would, in humility, again, speculate that the vast majority of Americans find themselves in this category when it comes to Jesus and his gospel message. I've heard it. It's curious to me. It's a bit perplexing. How could you truly believe that this This person, Jesus, would rise from the dead. It's curious. I find it bewildering. I don't really know what to do with it. There's a second group, though, and the second group has decided definitively what they're going to do with it. Others, the Bible says, judged it, criticized it, mocked it. And in mocking the Holy Spirit and what they see, they reject it. You see specifically what they reject is the idea that what is happening is supernatural. And so they give it a natural reason. Oh, they must be drunk. They reject the idea that God is powerful and supernatural and they, dare I say, give it a scientific reason. They must be drunk. But they reject what God is doing And they reject the testimony of people standing all around them who are speaking the truth when they say, I hear them speaking in my language. It's not gibberish and it's not drunkenness. Something supernatural is happening here because Peter, who could never speak that language, now he's speaking it. But they reject it. 
I would say to you this morning that both of those first two groups, at the end of the day, they ultimately merge into one. You can be curious about who Jesus is and kind of keep him at a distance, or you can outright say, this is not what I want. But at the end of the day, they are both ultimately a rejection of Jesus. Because you will, in your life, every single person will either reject King Jesus, or we will fall down on our knees and worship and say, Jesus, you are the Lord. And you are my savior. And there's a third group here that shows up. They're amazed. They don't understand everything that they are seeing and hearing clearly. Guys, do not expect to find a day where you understand the God of this universe. You should be amazed daily by who God is and what he does. He will blow the doors off of your plans, your purposes, your expectations, and your schematics. The third group here, though, they believed. They were astonished, perplexed, bewildered, but they believed. And when they believed, their response was personal. It was internal. It was a heart response that says, I hear and I believe. They responded in faith to the message of the good news of Jesus. They responded by saying, and we'll see this next week, yes, I am a sinner. And yes, I need Jesus to save me. And yes, I want to be filled with this same power, the power of the Holy Spirit. The question then for us is, which are you? Where do you find yourself even this morning? If you don't believe, let today be the day that the Holy Spirit speaks to you, that you hear from God's word in a fresh way and you say, I'm laying down my abilities and I'm taking up his I'm admitting I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness and I'm asking for forgiveness from Jesus. I'm admitting that I cannot do life on my own and I need King Jesus to lead my life. I'm acknowledging my emptiness on my own and that I need to be filled with the Lord. Will you take your questions to him? If you are bewildered this morning, will you take your questions to the Lord in prayer? Will you talk to someone else who who has told you, I believe in Jesus. Will you take your questions to them and begin to talk more and more about who this Jesus is? And if you are a believer this morning, if you're a brother and sister in Christ this morning, I would ask you this, are you following a Jesus that still amazes you? Are you following a Jesus that astonishes you? Or are you following a Jesus that you can sort of put in your pocket and pull out when it is convenient? Are you following a Jesus that you can ignore because the realities of day-to-day life are so much more interesting, amazing, and astounding than King Jesus? Don't let it be another day, believer. Jesus is astonishing. Let he be the thing that wakes you up in the morning the thing that carries you through the day and that you go to bed at night with peace knowing that Jesus is astonishing. Don't be surprised when God works immeasurably more than all that we can ask or imagine. Don't ask for small things. Ask for incredible things. Ask for things that you know you could never do because it's not about you and what you could do. It's about what he can and does do every day. And with that in mind, then, believers, we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, fill me again with your spirit afresh. Give me your wind and your fire to be filled with joy about the good news of the gospel and to speak it out with my tongue to all those so that they might hear and receive that same good news. Amen.